again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. May God add his blessing to our reading of this word. In chapter 7 and 8 of John's gospel, the setting is the great feast of tabernacles. And dramatically, John tells us that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. With all of the controversies now laid aside for a moment, Jesus opens his heart. It's an impassioned appeal. He's standing there in the temple among the crowds of pilgrims, probably in the proximity of the altar where the water from the pool of Siloam was poured each morning. And he's calling on all who would to come to him and to receive that life-giving blessing of the Spirit. It's a call to hear the truth. Believing brought living water, which resulted in new spirituality. But the feast had another symbol, light. At the end of the first day, in the court, the prob- uh, probably the, the court of uh, the ladies, the women, uh, that's kind of what comes out there in, in verse 20, but, uh, excuse me here for a second, I am not wanting to advance. There we go. Probably there in the court of the women. Um, And what was going on is that day they would light these candles and then they would sing and they'd celebrate with music. And they'd even dance. And that would continue through the nights uh, of the feast all the way up until the last day with those lights illuminating the entire city. And it was in this setting that Jesus' claim in verse 12 stands out boldly. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, as the feast is ending, and the lights are being extinguished, Jesus proclaims himself as the true light of the people of God. And not only Israel, but the whole world. That is a truth claim of cosmic significance. The light, you see, eliminates darkness. I I think that's why at the Last Supper, 
as Jesus was preparing the disciples for his death, he gave another claim of cosmic significance uh, as he told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, but the way and the truth, the light that extinguishes darkness. And his authoritative claims were a constant in all of his messages. And it was the exposition of his authority that resulted, according to John 8.20 or 8.30, I mean, in many putting their faith in him. And so now Jesus addresses these aspiring disciples, and you and I as well, and encourages them to continue in their new path, holding on to his teaching. And he says to do so will bring them a knowledge of the truth that will set them free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Say, okay, you've done all of this in John and our text is in Matthew. Well, I think that in a world that's turned its back on absolute truth claims, though the, the very statement, there are no absolute truths, is in fact an absolute truth claim, <laughs> Jesus reminds us that the way to a proper understanding of truth is by abiding in His Word. And it's also the path to freedom. That's why you have heard me say many times, I am a person who reads and studies, but I judge what I read and study by God's Word. I don't judge God's Word by what I read and study. And while the word truth doesn't appear in our text for today, there's little question that truth-telling is the essence of this passage. That's what lies behind an oath. Confirming that you'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I, I think no one, no one is any more qualified to write the chapter on these verses in the book that I have honoring Doc Henderson, a chapter that was simply entitled Truth, than my recently deceased friend Lynn Laughlin. And in his introduction to his article in that book on truth, Lynn said this, Jesus' entire ministry was about truth. He wanted his followers to be people of integrity. From the outset of his ministry, Jesus wanted his disciples to hear the truth. Though just as important, he wanted them to speak the truth and to be people who could live by the truth. As we begin digging into our text for today, I think we need to remember that just as Jesus began his ministry with this emphasis on truth in, in his first teaching section of the Matthew's Gospel, it was also the very last question that was directed to Jesus. John 18.38, Pilate said, What is truth? Uh, you know, truth... 
as you know, I'm, I'm only 70 years old. But I remember when a man's word meant something. A handshake would seal a deal. You didn't need contracts that lawyers scrutinize from beginning to end. And you know, that's, that's been a practice I've tried to live by. If I tell you I'll do something, I'll be there. If I'm not there, I'm probably in the hospital because even if I don't feel real well, I'll probably be there anyway. We need to be people of our word. And here's the problem with oaths. Even in the religious world of Judaism, one could work or word his or her way out of an oath, out of telling the truth. It was, it's another example actually of their devious treatment of the Old Testament scriptures in order for them to, to make uh, it more amenable, a little bit easier to be obedient. Technically, Jesus didn't quote a single verse from Moses' law in this little section. At the same time, though, it's not an inaccurate summary of several Old Testament precepts that require people who make vows to keep them. Moses often seems to have emphasized the evil of false swearing and, and the duty of performing the Lord to, to the Lord one's oaths. Here are just a few examples. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2. When a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not be slack to pay it. Now, even a superficial reading of these commandments indicates very plainly their intention. They prohibit false swearing or perjury. That is, making a vow and then breaking it. But the Pharisees shifted the people's attention from the vow itself and the need to keep the vow to the formula that was used in making it. And they argued that what the law was really prohibiting was not taking the name of the Lord in vain, but taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were changing the focus to the motivation to what little part of the formula was being dishonored. And so instead of false swearing, they concluded that what that meant was profanity, a profane use of the divine name, and not perjury, a dishonest pledging of one's word. Now, Jesus didn't take that lightly. You go to Matthew 23. It's one of those interesting chapters. Woe to you, blind Scribes, leaders, Pharisees, 
A whole series of woes. Verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. The teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is very similar. The second part of his teaching, once again, addresses the vicious cycles that they have set up and sets his teaching over and against that of the rabbis, but not over and against the law of Moses. It's exegesis, not antithesis. Did you also notice that as Jesus begins this second set of three teachings, uh, not only does this fourth teaching use the introductory formula in its full form, as he only does in the very first and this fourth, but notice that he also used the word again to mark a fresh beginning. In this fourth teaching, Jesus is in the midst of teaching how God's word had been perverted by Jewish traditions. And now he deals with the concept of truth and how the kingdom person conveys truth through the simplest of words. Which brings me to my second point. And that is the simplicity of truth. Ah. Uh. I don't know if they told you, but I'm a retired policeman. You told me. Did I? I, I put it together up there. Okay. <laughs> when we interrogated people regarding crimes, they would get asked the same questions more than once, and often by more than one person. You know why? changes. It's easy to remember the truth. What really happened. But it's hard to remember what lie you told to somebody. And so often they would get caught in telling a different story therefore revealing they're lying somewhere. It wasn't just a badgering. It was a planned attempt to find out if they were going to repeat the same story or not. I got interviewed one time by Internal Affairs. I hadn't been on the police department very long. I was involved in an incident, had to go in and give a statement. When I was finished giving the statement, the detective who interviewed me said, well, obviously we know what happened, 
because you and your partner and a witness all say exactly the same thing. Truth is easy to remember. And I don't know about you, but to me, it rings a bell when somebody's told me something and then sometime later they tell me something with a little bit of a different slant. Words that are spoken do not need the addition of oaths to strengthen them. They should stand alone. And yet you've probably said something similar to what I hear myself saying many times. This is the truth. As if other things I say are not. Or I've heard people say, well the truth of the matter. Now think about it. Doesn't the youth of oaths just lead to actually the devaluation of all speech? A.M. Hunter once wrote, Oaths arise because men are so often liars. If I have to tell you something is the truth, haven't I already divided my speech into two categories? That which is confirmed by calling upon God or just giving an oath? And that which is then going to be questionable since it has no affirmation. Mutual trust between the speaker and the listener is weakened. And the door is open to doubt, hypocrisy, and lies when we don't always tell the truth. And so we find ourselves asking instead of assuming. And I can think of several people that I'm in a relationship with one way or another, either family or friends, that I will flat out say, are you telling me the truth? And, and it, it hurts to have to ask that. And did you notice how Jesus begins... By arguing that the question of the formula used in making vows is of total irrelevance. And in particular, the Pharisees' distinction between those formulae which mention God and the throne and those that do not, how that's entirely artificial. So if the precise wording of a vow or formula is irrelevant, then a preoccupation with formulae was not the point of the law at all. Indeed, since anybody who makes a vow is expected and should keep it, whatever formula he or she uses, strictly speaking, all of those formulae are unnecessary. A formula doesn't have to, in fact, doesn't add any seriousness or solemnity to a vow. A vow is binding irrespective of its accompanying formula. Now this hurts to tell you this, but I have a friend in ministry that I don't ask to do anything anymore. Because several times he's told me, I'll do that, but then he'll call me and say, uh, I, I know I told you I'd do it, but something else has come up. And most of the time, it's just something that's more attractive or more appealing or, or maybe even more profitable. 
So I, I don't even ask him anymore to do anything. And we were really close for several years. You see, that's why Jesus concludes by saying, let what you say be simply yes or no. Now I've shared with you how many believe that the letter of James is a form of a Jewish commentary, a midrash just on the Sermon on the Mount. And last week I gave you some goldenrod uh, colored handouts that showed all of the parallels. I think we can agree that what Jesus is saying is establishing a, a foundation for the community. Pincus Lapid, the, the Orthodox Jew, says that the letter of James reads like an echo of the instruction on the mount. And that's why in James 5.12, James says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And James has already pointed out that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a whole or perfect person, also able to bridle his own body. Because the tongue, he said, is only a small member and yet boasts of great things. Think about it. How many people do you know that have done a lot of really good things who have ruined have ruined their standing in your eyes because of how they would let their tongue rattle. Things they would say to people or things they would say about people. All kinds of good all brought to naught because they can't control their tongue. And Lapid writes, to guarantee absolute confidence and credibility as the foundation of a new, honest form of community, which is the church, then requires control of the tongue, avoidance of ambiguity, and, not least, in everything one says to one's neighbor, consciousness of standing before and under the God who is entitled to the entire undiminished truth. You see, what this passage says to me is if we're going to be the true church, if we're going to be true disciples, the bottom line is that we have to have truth as a foundation. And yes should always mean yes. And no should always mean no. And there is no such thing as a little white lie. So here's my challenge as we close. We started with the affirmation of Jesus. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So let's hear the affirmations of the psalmist anew seeking truth and freedom. 
For instance, Psalm 119.86 The truth, all your commandments are sure. They, that is your commandments, are persecuted with falsehood. Help us. In terms of God's judgments. Psalm 36.6 Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. In terms of protection, Psalm 91.4 He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. In terms of the future, Psalm 96.13 Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the people's in His faithfulness. And finally, Psalm 85, verses 11 to 13. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. How? By His people being people of the truth. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes these teachings of your son Jesus are short. But oh, what a bite they carry. Help us not to find ways to get out of what we have promised and said but help us to be people of integrity. Help us, as James said, to bridle our tongues. To speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Use us throughout this week. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.